sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. No matter how good a deal I make with China, if they sell me Beijing for one dollar, the Democrats will say, what a lousy deal. That's a terrible deal. I'm going to be signing a national emergency. And it's been signed many times before. I ran on a very simple slogan, make America great again. If you're going to have drugs pouring across the border, if you're going to have human traffickers pouring across the border in areas where we have no protection, in areas where we don't have a barrier, then very hard to make America great again. And now, Stacey Washington. Yeah. Uh, there was the audio just there where the president said, um, I could literally buy Beijing for a dollar. Now, I, I'm going to admit, you guys, and I, I'm not exaggerating when I say I've traveled the world. I've been all over, but I have never been to the Far East. I've been to the Middle East, but I've never been to the Far East. I've never been to China or Taiwan or or um, Australia, which is, you know, in the same vicinity, obviously, but I've never been that far. The farthest I've been in that direction is obviously to Russia, to Moscow, and what was then St. Petersburg. And so um, I had no idea what Beijing looked like. So I watched that movie, Crazy Rich Asians, partially so I could see what they were talking about. Like, I wanted to get a view of it. And I know I could go and Google it, you know, Bing it and check it out online, but it's something to see it with people walking around in, in, in a movie setting. So Beijing is a beautiful city. And President Trump has talked about the beauty of Beijing so many different times. But it was something to see it in that movie, Crazy Rich Asians, which I'm, I'm not doing a movie review right now. I'm telling you, you know, recommend it or don't recommend it. You make your own decision. Watch the previews, et cetera. But Beijing is like not something they would give up. That is their premier city. It's their flagship city. And it is gorgeous. It is modern and architecturally significant. It has beauty. Um, and, it, and it's a wonderful place to go as a tourist to experience the very best that China has to offer. So if the president says that he could get them to sell Beijing to him for $1, that would be a significant deal. That'd be the biggest art of the deal deal Donald Trump had ever done. He, he could retire at that moment because there'd be nothing else he could do to top that. And the, everyone would still say, well, he just, you know, and they would criticize it. He's right. So in that atmosphere, what exactly was he supposed to do? Now, I hate the bill that he signed and I've criticized it. But I also, as I said, when we were going over our uh, Psalm 37, one through six, our daily confession for today, I'm holding on to that tighter than I am what the, the, the actual text of the act, the bill that was signed by the president. I'm holding on to God's word primarily. And everything else is, is it's secondary or it's even after three. So after tertiary, whatever it's, it's moving on down the line, not the primary concern. Also there, there is other news out there, which is so interesting that we kind of seem really fixated on the border stuff. Um, when there's so much other news out there. Now, one of the things that I've noticed has been happening. Um, and I so I'm going to go over this first. First of all, the Trump care plans, um, they were calling them Trump care because they were saying how horrible they were, that it was specifically Trump care. Um, and the president and the White House said, don't call it Trump care. Anything that has to do with health care, it's Obama's baby. 
um, any improvements that are made or adjustments to Obamacare. He's the one who forced that bill through, through, through the Democrats. No Republicans signed on to it. You can never ascribe anything that's wrong with health care to the Republicans because the Democrats own it. And I know how much people hate it when I say stuff like that. When I blame something on the Democrats, people email me, you hate yourself. You hate black people. Why are you obsessed with Barack Obama? You don't go any shows without talking about him. You know what? I'll talk about whatever I want to. Until I hear from on high that something is not going correctly, you don't get to email me and tell me that I'm going to do something or I'm talking about something too much and then have me make a change. I'm not changing for you. I don't care what you think. If you worship Barack Obama and you don't like me telling the truth about him, that's a personal problem. You need to look up the spirit of offense and the spirit of truth, and you need to do some studying and get yourself right and worry about yourself. Don't worry about me. Worry about yourself. Now, if you're listening and you, you know, you're interested in information, even if it is diametrically opposed to what you believe, then you're in the right spot. I'm not always going to be the cup of tea that you're looking for. It, it's just not going to happen. There's going to be some issue that we disagree on. If we disagreed on 100% of the things, it would mean we were the same person. We'll, we'll probably be in the same vein most of the time. If you're on the right, if you're conservative, if you have a Christian worldview, we're probably going to be pretty much the same on a, a ton of different things. If there's going to be something where you're going to run up against the buzzsaw of my opinion, my personally held opinion, and you heard me right when I said buzzsaw, I'm not changing. I'm not changing my mind because you disagree with me. That's not how this thing works. Happy Friday to you. Glad that you're here. And I want to talk about these Trump care um, plans that are actually working. Again, I don't like the characterization of Trump care, but whatever. It, it's, it's the derangement syndrome that impacts the, the writing of these stories. So you'll have to remember for context that when the Trump administration actually rolled out their plan to provide less expensive alternatives to Obamacare by allowing workers and small businesses to pull together to buy insurance, Democrats were like crazy ticked off about it, offended, up in arms, because they said there were junk plans, skinny plans, worthless plans, plans Americans didn't want. The exact same plans people got thrown off of that they wanted. They were told they would be able to keep those plans by Barack Obama. That was a lie. They got basically hoodwinked. Well, Early evidence suggests that the initiative is working out, that Americans are happy with these association health plans. They've got similar provisions in them to Obamacare, but they're not obligated to have those, those provisions. So you're able to kind of look at the different association health care plans and pick one that suits your needs. Some of them are very similar to Obamacare and some of them are not, and people are making the decision for themselves, which... The choice aspect of it is, I think, what really works for people. And so they're paying for prevention. They're getting visits to the doctor's office and the hospital, emergency medicine access, prescription drugs, maternity care, and mental health care. That's, those things are what's covered in these association health care plans. The plans also cover people who have preexisting conditions like cancer or diabetes. They're required to. That part wasn't well publicized, which I hate it when... The Republicans do something awesome and then they don't publicize it, kind of similar to what the caller was talking about with the president wanting everybody to be paid while he argued with Nancy Pelosi about the wall. Um, so officials in the Department of Labor announced new rules for the plans in June, with some of the plans being allowed for purchase beginning in September. Since then, at least 28 plans have launched in 13 states and the chambers of commerce, trade associations and people who are self-employed have been enrolling in these plans. One of the plans is offered by the Nebraska, 
pardon me, Nebraska Farm Bureau Federation, which counts more than 59,000 farmers and ranchers among its members. So they're going to continue to work on getting the last provision that was promised by the president, which was the ability to have portability of your plan across state lines or to say, I like that plan in Illinois better than I like this one, which I mean, fat chance of that ever happening. If you're in Missouri, you're going to like what we have, or you're going to like something from Kansas better than you're going to like anything from Illinois. But you know, there it is. You're going to be able to say, I want to buy that one and be able to buy it across state lines. The same thing that we do with right now with car insurance. Um, So this is good policy and it's a success for the president and it should be celebrated. And if you're one of those people who's currently using one of these association plans, but you have Trump derangement syndrome, how does that all exist in the same brain? Like how is your head not, you know, exploded or formed into a black hole and and sucking, you know, everything around it into the black hole slowly and messing with the space time continuum? How's that not happening to you? Um, So, you know, this is good news. I'm glad that this is happening and that it's actually being reported. And we should be grateful that there is this alternative because many, many people who were on Obamacare are now living in states where there's only one option. So you actually don't have a choice. If you're on Obamacare, you have to have whatever the plan is that's offered to you there. You can't pick between any other ones because there aren't any other options. These association healthcare plans take the place of that and they are the free market solution. I just hate that the Republicans were never able to get health care together to be able to circumvent the requirement that the Democrats create some big, huge government takeover, which now, of course, they've bared their full face. They want Medicare for all. And if you've heard some of the stories of how people are treated on Medicare, how could you possibly want anyone you love or your family member to be on that? Like, how could you want that? Because you hate Donald Trump. That's why. Well, you know, personal problem. So. One of the other things that I watched this morning, and it's so heartbreaking, the whole clip, it's on the Facebook page if you want to watch it for yourself, is a bunch of women for Trump and some angel moms got together and stormed Nancy Pelosi's office. They'd been there all week long trying to get a few minutes with Nancy Pelosi to tell their stories. They're wearing T-shirts or carrying big, huge, like, you know, homemade signs with pictures of their kids on it. And everybody who's in the pictures that they're carrying, they're all dead. So these moms and dads are walking around with all they have left of their kids, which are the memories and a picture of them. And they keep going to Nancy Pelosi's office, just asking for some time to sit with her and talk about what they've been through. And Nancy Pelosi won't meet with them. Here is one of the moms. She turned to a man who was standing there with the picture he was holding in his hand. And she asked him, you know, are you an angel dad? And what happened? And he starts to tell his story. It's number four. He was a constituent. Oh, yeah. And I let them know that, that he was a constituent of Speaker Pelosi's district and they didn't care. Sir, how did you lose your son? Um, He was coming home from law school one night um, in San Francisco and uh, illegal alien ran him over. Actually ran him over three times. <clears throat> ran him over three times. He drove over him, um, and then he backed up, trying to flee, and drove over him a second time, and then went forward a third time. And that time, somebody stood in front of his car, and he stopped. But his rear tire was on my son's abdomen. Oh my! So, um, welcome to San Francisco. And what happened to the driver? Um, he got con- well. He was charged with vehicular homicide, hit and run. The preliminary hearing judge dropped it to vehicular manslaughter. Um, he 
got convicted, was sentenced to six months in jail, and was released after 43 days. And then um, my congressman at the time was Henry Waxman. He wasn't particularly helpful, but he did contact USCIS because I went to see him and said, I want the guy detained and deported when he gets out. And the response back was, he's not going to, this is not from Waxman, this is from USCIS, he's not going to be deported because he's only committed, and this is an exact quote, one crime of moral turpitude. And it took me eight months, I finally did get him deported, but that's not what I should have to do. So, just to stress what we heard there, he said his child was walking home from, obviously he's a young man, he's walking home from, uh, law school class and an illegal alien ran him over and then he backed up to try to get away and ran over him again and then pulled forward because apparently he still couldn't get you know his car dislodged from wherever he was and when he pulled forward the the rear wheel was on his son's abdomen crushing him to death And the illegal alien would have driven away if not for bystanders jumping in front of the car and saying, stop. Now, that's vehicular homicide and attempted hit and run. But the guy had the judge, this illegal alien had a judge plead it down to a lesser charge that he was then sentenced to six months for. And he was released after 43 days. So I I want you to understand we're talking about a child that this man and his wife, they had a baby. They got through the baby years, you know, the, the f- years one and two. They got through the terrible toddler years, the sweet threes, the fantastic fours, the interesting kindergarten year, you know, the five years old. They get this boy all the way through middle school, high school, and then they get him through college, undergrad, and he's in law school. And at this point, they've got to be thinking to themselves, praise God, look, look at what you've done. And some illegal alien takes their child from them. The ultimate in family separation. And Nancy Pelosi won't even take five minutes to look him in the eye and tell him why she thinks illegal aliens should be allowed to stay here and keep doing that. I just can't fathom what they're going through. And that is why the president declared a national emergency. That's just one reason why. We don't have to like what's going on, but we got to have a solution. And anyone who can't sympathize with that man losing his son so brutally, you got bigger problems than just, you know, disagreeing with him. You really do. All right. When we get back, we're going to have our next guest. Keep it here. Are you still stuck on the healthcare roller coaster? Still paying those high premiums? And strapped into huge deductibles? Not knowing what's around the next turn? Well, then let me tell you about a sound, sensible healthcare choice that really is affordable. It's MediShare, the healthcare sharing solution people like you have been trusting in for more than 25 years. MediShare members report saving around $500 a month on their healthcare costs, and they never pay for things they don't believe in. Time to say goodbye to that healthcare roller coaster and say hello to MediShare. Call star star 345 to find out how much you can save on your healthcare. MediShare. Call star star 345. Message and data rates may apply. That's star star 345.
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. You know, if the younger generation wants to know the keys to success, they need to follow the success sequence published by Bradford Wilcox and Wendy Wang. They say that the millennial generation is more likely to flourish financially if they follow the success sequence. They say you need to get at least a high school degree, work full time, and marry before having any children in that order. Their recent study at the American Enterprise Institute has the title, The Millennial Success Sequence, Marriage, Kids, and the Success Sequence Among Young Adults. They persuasively argue that if millennials follow this success sequence, they will have a 97% chance of not being poor by the time they reach their young adult years. In fact, 86% of those studied had family incomes in the middle class or above. Their study reminded me of another study posted by William Galston. Many years ago, he found that in order to avoid being poor, you must do three things. First, graduate from high school. Second, wait until age 20 to have children. And three, wait until getting married to have children. He has found that young people who follow these rules have a 92% chance of staying above the poverty line. By contrast, a young person who breaks just one of these rules has a 79% chance of being below the poverty line. In a more recent op-ed, William Galston, who served in the Clinton administration, made it even simpler. Want to know the best poverty cure? Get married. Single parenthood hurts all children, and black children bear the greatest brunt of the harm. All of these different studies come to the same conclusion. Marriage is important, and the keys to success are to follow what is now being called the success sequence. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. It is a pleasure to be with you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Stacy on the Right. You can also find out more about what we do at UrbanFamilyTalk.com, including the Marriage and Family Conference, which is coming up in June. You can also find out everything you want to know. See the blog called The Stand and so much more over at AFR.net. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome John Malcolm. He's the Vice President for the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. John, thank you for coming on today. Good to be with you. Okay, so you have a ton of things to explain to us, uh, you know, me included, and the listeners, you do. I, I read your blurb, and I was so glad that, that Devin was able to get you on today because you're just like, you're sliding in at the perfect moment. And I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. I never <laughs> pretend. So I need you to help me get what's going on here. I see people on the right freaking out, John, because they're like, next, it's going to be gun control. You know, they're going to make all the kids go to indoctrination camps. They'll be able to use an emergency order. And I don't necessarily see it that way because I know this isn't the first emergency order that's ever been issued. We do have a changing political landscape. Tell us what we need to know about this, uh, this, this, this new thing. We live in a new era now. President Trump has declared a national emergency. Sure. So let's, let's figure out exactly what the president has done today. So Congress gave him $1.375 billion to build a barrier or part of a barrier along the southern border. And he has said that he thinks that this is insufficient. And so he has now invoked the National Emergencies Act to get another, oh, roughly a um, little over uh, $7 billion uh, for, this, uh, for this purpose. 
The National Emergencies Act is a post-Watergate piece of legislation, and all it does is it sets up a procedure for the president once he declares a national emergency. What a president has to do once he declares a national emergency is to notify Congress what that emergency is, what it is he proposes to do, and what other statutes are out there that allow him to do what it is that he wants to do. Right? Now, so the president has laid out his case as to why this is a national emergency. He's talked about, you know, 73% increase in fentanyl coming through the border in the last year, 43 and, or 38% increase in heroin and methamphetamine. He's talked about, you know, a dramatic increase in asylum claims, gang members and, and uh, suspected terrorists and people with criminal records being apprehended at the border by ICE agents and Customs and Border Patrol agents. He's talked about the plight of people who are uh, carried across the border, a third of women being sexually assaulted, etc. $2.5 billion uh, being made by these coyote human smuggler uh, organizations every year. And he's also talked about uh, the harm that is caused in terms of all the crime that is committed by people who are successful in getting into our country illegally. He referred to this as a sort of invasion today. Mm. So that is his case, factual case for making an emergency. Um, and now the other statutes that he is relying upon is he's looking to get $600 million from the Treasury, De Treasury Department's Drug Forfeiture Fund. That's a statute that allows the Secretary of the Treasury to take over, to take money that's in this fund to be used for legitimate law enforcement purposes. And certainly stopping human smuggling and drugs at the border is a legitimate law enforcement function. And then he's, talked to, he's looked at two other statutes that are about the Department of Defense. One of them is he's looking for uh, the, the, the the Pentagon has its own drug interdiction program, and he says he's going to take $2.5 billion from that. That's Title 10, Section uh, 284 of the United States Code. And that provision clearly says that you can use those funds uh, in order to build uh, fences, install lighting, et cetera, to block drug smuggling operations. And then the other section that where he's going to get the last $3.6 billion says that when the president declares a national emergency and it's going to involve the use of the armed forces, that you can engage in military construction projects in order to support the armed forces. Now, <laughs> the reason why I say all of that is this. There is no question that presidents have broad authority under the National Emergencies Act, but it is not limitless. The president can not just say, I want to stop global warming, or I want to stop whatever, fill in the blank, crisis, and therefore I'm going to declare a national emergency. If you do that, you have to then rely on these other statutes that say what you can do under what circumstances. So far as I know, there is no other federal statute that says the president can take uh, money that's otherwise been appropriated and divert it in order to combat global warming. Or uh, he can take whatever money he's going to use uh, to stop the importation of any guns, lawful and unlawful. I mean, importing uh, guns illegally is already a crime. There's already a lot of money spent on that. And in fact, if anything, this barrier will probably help enhance that effort. Uh, so I understand people's concerns about what kind of a precedent this sets. Uh, but as you have correctly said, presidents have uh, declared national emergencies for a whole host of reasons ever since the act was promulgated. Uh, and it's not a limitless authority. Okay. What an amazing breakdown. If we only had a five-minute interview, you would have covered basically all the questions I had. Now, because you covered all those and you did a great job, you know what happens when you do well. You have to do more. So let's keep going, John. 
Sure. You mentioned gun confiscation. So what I've yes. seen is people have already been tweeting me because I'm a Second Amendment proponent and member of the NRA. And they're like, yeah, and when it's President Kamala Harris, we're going to come for your guns. And I was like, well, you better bring guns and tanks because you're not getting anything from over here. But that doesn't fall into a national emergency. If there's like a spate or rash of school shootings and a bunch of people are killed or whatever the case might be, we already have laws that cover that. A national emergency has to be something that isn't covered. Is is that what's I mean, because I just want to be clear. People are afraid of this. People on the right are actually on message boards arguing with each other on just who's going to make who do what. We're going to make your kids go to global warming camp and they're going to make them stay there. We're going to make your kid change their major to environmentalism. Um, we're going to have to have 50,000 people to do that. And, and Kamala Harris will make 50,000 American kids study global warming under an emergency act. Is that possible? Are these wild things possible? No. <laughs> now, <laughs> let, let's begin Let's begin by saying a blanket statement, which is there is no statute that can be used to trump somebody's constitutional rights. So if you have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms and you are a qualified gun owner, you don't have a, uh, you know, you've not been declared mentally incompetent, you're not a convicted felon, all of the other things that would disqualify you, disqualify you from lawfully possessing a firearm, if you don't have any of those disabilities, there is no statute or no national emergency that could lead the president to come in and deprive you of your Second Amendment right. Similarly, if they sat there and said, we're going to put you into some kind of an indoctrination camp for global warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have a First Amendment right uh, you know, to, to speak about your issues. You're entitled to have some control over how, how your children are educated. I mean, look, our public schools teach a lot of stuff that some of us may not like that's, that's politically correct. Government does have some authority to do that, but they do not have the ability to take you and to put you into indoctrination camps, and they don't have the ability to come and seize your guns. Now, there are a lot of state laws that people will pass to try to form gun registries or background checks at, uh, uh, at gun shows, and those are always subject to Second Amendment challenges. But a president could not just come in and say, I've decided that gun violence is a national emergency, and therefore I'm declaring a national emergency and ordering police authorities and the National Guard to go in and seize the firearms of every lawful gun owner. Just couldn't do that. Okay, so two more questions. I, and you're, you're doing such a great job of answering and then, like, for, so we can get through all of this because this is one of those ones where, uh, you know, people should be prepared to share this podcast because it will calm a lot of people down, especially on a Friday afternoon. It's snowing here in Missouri, so I'm already freaked out because I'm so sick of this real winter. I want the <laughs> fake winter I had last year. Um, and the global warming, I was promised. I don't mind telling you. Um, but so there's two more things. First of all, where where does the money go? So let's let's talk about the El Chapo Act that was uh, something that's been put forward by Senator Ted Cruz. Right. And what he wants to do is take the $14 billion that the U.S. government is currently confiscated from El Chapo. He wants to designate that money for wall funding because then it would actually be a Mexican paying for the wall. But isn't that money going to end up in the U.S. Treasury anyway and be subject to the president utilizing it for whatever because it has to do with drugs and he's dealing with the issue of the border? Well, so let's break this down. So, so part of the conviction for, uh, for you know, uh, Juan Guzman, El Chapo, involved a criminal forfeiture. I think it was for $14 billion. I don't know how. So they're entitled to get whatever they find assets of Chapo Guzman up to $14 billion. I don't think they have in hand anything like $14 billion. I would oh, okay. surprised if they had more than a billion or so. So what Ted Cruz has proposed, and Congress could do this if it wants to, is to say this is a criminal forfeiture 
and we want to designate these funds for this purpose. Congress can, can appropriate money. It's now the federal government's money, and he can do that. I don't think that law is going to pass because the House of Representatives, controlled by the Democrats, are never going to allow it to pass. But if it doesn't, whatever funds uh, are seized in that case become part of a forfeiture fund. There are, in fact, two forfeiture funds, one run by the Department of Justice and one run by the Department of Treasury. The president has tapped into the fund controlled by the Department, by the Treasury Department because there, he has more of a free hand as to how that money can be spent. The money in the Justice Department's forfeiture fund, there are more strings attached. It says that the government must spend the money on this, that, and the other, and there's probably less flexibility to use that money for wall funding. But if Congress passed an act that said the president can use these funds for wall funding, then, they, then he could do it. Okay, so another question that is just pop- – these, these are coming at me hard and fast. So <laughs> there was um, – there's a bill there's, – there's actual law that says that – so right now the drug cartels are transcriminal organizations. That's their designation. But if they were to be designated terrorist organizations because of the death toll, you know, you can, you can associate the deaths for opioid overdoses, 70,000 a year, all the deaths for drunk driving, 10% of all of our drunk driving, right. um, you know, is, is from illegal aliens, et cetera, et cetera. If you tally that up, we're talking about well over 100,000 people a year. That far dwarfs the number of people who are killed by guns a year, even if you include the suicide numbers. So this is a, a real problem that we're facing at the border. And these, tr- these transnational criminal organizations actually operate like terrorist organizations using militarized weaponry. They operate in more than one country, 40 countries, I think, at last count. And they are organized in a militaristic fashion and they're waging a war by moving illicit materials through our border. Right. Um, so it's it's like they're waging a war on us. Why, why doesn't the president use that? Because it completely shuts Congress out of the deal because the, the ability to um, you know, designate organizations as terrorists is remanded to the executive and he's the commander in chief of the U.S. Armed Forces and he can use money that's already allocated in the defense budget to wage war on them. He could even dr- use drones to kill uh, cartel members. Now, that's, that's all true, and you make a somewhat compelling case for that, although it would be a rather radical extension uh, of our nation's drug interdiction efforts. I mean, there are statutes like the Posse Comitatus Act that uh, prohibit uh, the military from being used for, law enf- for domestic law enforcement. Our drug interdiction efforts, while they certainly have a transnational uh, aspect to it, and there's no question these are well-funded organizations that have military equipment and they they. Uh, corrupt governments in the countries in which they operate. Uh, you know, it's been perceived as being a domestic law enforcement function, uh, and the president hasn't felt the need to go that far uh, because he doesn't need to in order to do what it is he wants to do now to build a wall. However, if he wanted to use a broader use of our military to go into Central and South America or other countries in order to combat, uh, combat drugs beyond what he does now, then he might have to resort to that kind of authority. Yeah, I I read an article on Conservative Review. I think it's by David Horowitz, and he talks about 10 U.S.C. Section 10 allowing the Secretary of Defense upon request from federal or state law enforcement dealing with drug trafficking and in conjunction with the Secretary of State to provide support for the counter-drug activities or activities to counter transnational organized crime and that subsection B7 allows DOD to provide help in the form of construction of roads, fences, installation of lighting to block drug smuggling corridors across international boundaries of the U.S. This is already existing law. Yes, no, that's right. And in fact, uh, Title 10, uh, United States Code Section 284 
uh, is the provision I cited before, and it does allow when there's a declaration of emergency for the Secretary of Defense in order to, and here's a quote, use funds for, quote, construction of roads and fences and installation of lighting to block drug smuggling corridors across international boundaries of the United States. And that is one of the, th- the authorities that the president is relying upon today. Okay, so last question has to do with what the president actually said from the Rose Garden, and we've been discussing it on the show ad nauseum, which is everything he does, basically the Democrats take it to the naughty Ninth Circuit, and they put a national injunction on it. Do they have the ability to enjoin him from declaring a national emergency? Well, they don't have the ability to to enjoin him from declaring a national emergency. What they're going to try to do is challenge his the legitimacy of that invocation and challenge his ability to build the wall. So somebody is now going to file a lawsuit, whether it's the House of Representatives or some interest group or some homeowner whose property is being forfeited under eminent domain in order to build this uh, barrier, and it will likely be filed in California, since California is within the Ninth Circuit. If they filed it in Texas, they'd be in the more conservative Fifth Circuit, and then we'll be off to the races. Courts have traditionally been reluctant to second-guess the president when it comes to national security decisions. Presidents receive daily classified briefings from the intelligence community. Article Three federal judges do not. Uh, but as we saw with the travel ban and with this president, there appear to be a lot of judges out there who have no reluctance whatsoever about second-guessing this president and try to enjoin him from doing what it is he wants to do. But if a judge uh, does, in fact, enter a nationwide injunction, that will dramatically increase the odds uh, that there'll be an expedited review up to and including the Supreme Court. Mm, okay. All right. So I actually have a few more questions for you, but we're out of time. I will say this, John Malcolm of the Heritage Foundation, you're a fast talker, and I love that. And you <laughs> answered every single question. We have to have you back to talk about this some more. I'm, I just, I, I want to kind of, I, I think it's possible that maybe, because you have all this expertise, and I know the Heritage Foundation is, is available, you know, your experts and your, and your work is available to the president to call on. And perhaps he's already been briefed. That's, that's what I always assume, because that's his job, that he already knows everything you shared with us today. And so that this is going to actually end up with some wall being built, because mil- many millions of us Americans voted for him for that issue. And it's not, a, it's not a partisan thing for us. It's really about safety of Americans. And so I thank you so much for your time today and coming on. We look forward to speaking to you again. Uh, John Malcolm, VP of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. All right. Talk to you again soon. We will be back with the last segment of the show right after this. So you stay right there. In the darkest parts of Mumbai, India, in the red light districts, children are growing up scared and hopeless. No one looked after me, and I would constantly be locked in a room. And that's why Urban Family Talk and India Partners have been teaming up to rescue children as young as eight from the red light districts. And we want to say thank you. Because of your generosity, hundreds of days of safety have been provided at a safe house operated by India Partners. And every day that you've provided provides full room and board, a private Christian school, trauma counseling, and all of it done in the name of Jesus. Now I'm looking forward to growing up, continuing to grow in God, 
and begin working for him. Your gifts through India Partners are still very important and operators are still standing by. Call 877-616-2396, 877-616-2396 or give online at AFR.net. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called TuneIn. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. The Awakening with Bishop E.W. Jackson. I guarantee you, you would need a magnifying glass and a pair of tweezers to go across this country and find a liberal who is emotionally moved by the national anthem or, or by the sacrifice of our, of our military people. Making a difference in the culture. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when you have a filthy heart, you have a filthy mouth. The Awakening with Bishop E.W. Jackson. Weekdays at 9 a.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. I'm Hank Weinblum with your Word of the Week. It's hard to hear bad news. It can also be hard to deliver it. Consider the ending of employment. Some people are good at putting the hammer down. You're fired. The head of General Motors drove to her destination by a more indirect route. Five North American assembly and propulsion plants will be unallocated. Unallocated, a euphemism. And Barra says the massive layoff decision was far from easy. There are lots of ways of saying you and your job are getting a divorce. More retail stores are downsizing. The president had the constitutional authority to terminate Comey. Contract workers were let go. Transition their staff. The company's restructuring. Hundreds of tellers could be given pink slips. Unallocated is a new one. That's a word you might hear on Capitol Hill. There was talk about using unallocated funds to pay for a border wall. A few years ago, the government scrounged around for some unallocated money to bail out General Motors. With your Word of the Week, Hank Weindlum, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Republican and Democratic leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee at odds over the conclusion of their investigation. The heads of the Senate Intelligence Committee have been working together, but this is a significant disagreement. Yeah, George, for a committee here that has managed to so far conduct a bipartisan investigation, this is now a rare public rift. The Republican chairman, Richard Burr, says that as of now, they have found no factual evidence of collusion. But he notes that their investigation is not yet complete. But the top Democrat on the committee, Senator Mark Warner, tells us that he respectfully disagrees, that he's not ready to draw any conclusions since their probe is still ongoing. Our bottom line for this story is that after two years, 200 interviews, 300,000 documents, the Senate Intelligence Committee, both Republicans and Democrats, are telling us that they do not have direct evidence proving a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia, which is, after all, the main question they set out to answer. Okay, so listen to me now. <laughs> um, and, and yes, I'm still giggling and having an upbeat attitude, even though I'm telling you, I'm looking right out this window, and you might see I'm, I'm getting a little shiny because I think I've actually broken out into a sweat. I know now that me and all the kids had the day off from school today. So, I mean, I don't even know what we're paying that, that school for, uh, all, that, all that money every year. And they have, they have Monday off, which I think is a national holiday, and they have today off. They just have all these days off. I'm like, when are y'all getting your learning in? When are y'all getting your learning? So those children, and they're, they're strong. They're, they're young. They're strong. They have a lot of energy. We're going to be out there 
throwing salt and scraping before that gets too bad. Because I, w- I was under the impression it was just going to be a little bit of ice. We, I think there's at least an inch and a half, maybe two inches out there, and it's still coming down. And I never know what's going to happen. Like right now, live on the radio. I know you guys are so interested in this. You have to be thinking to yourself, what's going on with her? I'm here now on this, on this weather app. It says St. Louis snow. Of course, they have the cute little graphic going on. They say Saturday it's going to be sunny with a high of 38. Sunday overcast 40. Monday overcast 36 for the high. And then Tuesday we have snow again. This real winter is just so snow conditions with low visibility. The high will be 31. Cloudy tonight with a low of 18. Does it even say how many we're going to get? Okay, so it says we're not even getting an inch. But I'm looking outside, y'all. I see more than an inch. Who writes this thing? I can't take this anymore. Okay, so the audio you just heard coming in uh, was the networks. So Newsbusters reports that the network spent 2,202 minutes on the Russia scandal. They gave zero minutes for the report out of the Senate Intel Committee that says there's been they found no evidence of collusion. The Democrats are even coming out now and saying, well, the thing is, the report's still not done. So it's like, have you ever been to a game or something? And, and uh, it's like seven minutes. So, you know, it's, it's a kid's game. So they have eight-minute quarters. So you have seven minutes and some seconds left. And one team is about 10 points ahead. Well, in seven minutes, almost any team can score points and actually flip that game and win. But then you get down to two minutes. And you're watching the game. You're looking up. You notice now it's not it's, – it's they're still 10 or 11 points ahead. Then they start intentionally fouling each other because they're like, we got to drag this thing out a little bit and get some free throws in because that's how you can claw your way back to within a few points. And then two people shoot three-pointers and boom, you're done. Notice, I know all this stuff about high school ball. I do not watch the NBA. I just, I can't stomach it. But I love watching when, if someone I know is on the court, I can actually get into it. So you can tell I've watched enough of these games to see this. This has happened many times. So but the time you get down to 54 seconds, unless you've got, three people who can shoot successive three-pointers, steal the ball back and have turnovers. There's no way you're winning if you're down by nine or more. It's as if the Democrats are down by maybe 20 and there are two minutes left and they don't have any three-point shooters. And so they're just intentionally fouling to drag the game out and they just just want to be there until midnight and everybody else will be gone home and they'll still be intentionally fouling each other to make sure the game never ends because they're not going to get what they want. They're not going to get the Russian collusion thing. And I said this a while ago. And so I'm not normally in the habit of saying, I told you so, because, I mean, you don't have to say that. People know when you said it. They, they remember it. They remember it better than you did. I'm, I'm saying that because I don't think it was just me. I think there have been many people who've said, if the president is guilty of colluding with Russians in order to get elected or materially impacting the election, which we already know that's not true because the investigation on that's already been done long ago. We know that they spent roughly $100,000, give or take, on Facebook ads, but that it didn't materially sway the way people voted. It did cause a lot of people to feel a lot of angst and it upset a lot of people because some of these pages that they set up on Facebook and some of the Twitter accounts were very effective, even getting people to go to meetups um, and, and organize and carry signs and stuff when the organizer was actually a Russian bot, but the people who went were genuinely in support of the president. We know all of that now. And I have said and maintained, and I still maintain, that the most effective part of that operation, of them attempting to impact our election, was that they drove wedges between Americans that still exist to this day. There are people who aren't friends anymore on Facebook. There are people who don't, they won't talk to you when they see you in public. 
all because of this. There are people who literally, if they hear the name Trump, they almost foam at the mouth. They break out into a sweat. They lose their cool. There are people who are perpetually triggered by the idea that someone with a permanent tan or someone who's, you know, Hispanic or whatever could ever vote for someone who's a Republican. And the derangement that has occurred surrounding that has caused people who normally would keep their their bloodlust for infanticide and their desire to see newborn babies killed after abortions or the sale of baby body parts being something they're willing to accept because they can't have anything infringe on abortion, they would keep that to themselves. They would hide that away. And that would be in that's an inside thing. They would never let it be publicly known. Because of the Trump derangement syndrome, and, and I, I believe it's the timeline that we're on. I believe it's it's that time in the history of America in which the bourgeois support of abortion, the sanitized, euphemized, you know, I'm a supporter of choice, never saying the word abortion. I think it's just a clump of cells, never acknowledging the technology and the science that shows that it's, it's never just a clump of cells. It's a baby. It's a, it's a fetus. Yes. Yes. Because fetus is Latin for baby. It's a human life. Uh, it's not actually growing. If it's alive, it's growing. It's not a baby unless you want it. We know that's not logical. It's not scientific. It doesn't make any sense. In in the place in our history where we are, where technology meets up with science and we know what we know. A story I saw this morning, a doctor took a baby out of the mom and removed a tumor from the baby without severing the umbilical cord, put the baby back in, sewed the mom back up, and then she went on to deliver the baby full term. When we're doing stuff like that, there's no question that that's a baby. So people on the left who support abortion but they, again, it was choice and they were able to say it with, you know, the prim pronunciation of it. It was, I support choice for women. It's not my place to judge what a woman should do. It's not my job to tell someone what they can do with their body. And it was able to be said in those hushed tones in such a way as to almost elevate the conversation to being above reproach. We're no longer in that area of the timeline. We've moved past it. Now we're to a place where people have to rip off the mask and underneath the veneer of gentility presents one such, you know, the bearing of the, the, the two rows of teeth. The shark jaws have come out and, you know, there's blood dripping from the jaws and there, there's, there's a maniacal laugh behind it and there's crazy in the eyes and, and there's the stench of people openly bloodlusting for murder and lighting up buildings to celebrate the death and saying it's, it's you, you have a right to kill babies. You shout your abortion. All of those things. Hail Satan, they've said. They've, they've now moved past a genteel, reluctant support of choice to openly lusting for abortion and virulently attacking anyone who simply says, I can't stomach that. We're talking about babies here. And so they've gone on to ignore the uh, there have been a couple of polls that have come out since the law in New York was passed that decriminalizes killing a baby. If, the, if a woman's pregnant and you kill her and she's pregnant, you, you've only killed one person in New York. It's now the law that if you kill your baby, your unborn baby, your girlfriend gets pregnant, and you, she won't have an abortion and you beat her and she miscarries. That's not against the law. You can be charged with battering her. You can be charged with whatever 
you know, whatever kind of abuse you visited on her, you can be charged with that, but you're not going to be charged with murdering that unborn child. That's New York law now. And in order for that to get passed, enough people had to take off the veneer of gentility around choice and they had to get down and dirty with it and they had to sit down and craft a law like that. And a few people had to read it and a few more people had to spread it around and say, this is what we're doing. And a few more people had to join those people and say, yeah, this is what we're doing and we're going to celebrate it. And that is where the paths diverge. And so some of us are still over here on the path and we're saying, you know, the judgment seat is real and you don't have an excuse anymore. When you were supporting a euphemism called choice and you were able to distance yourself from what was really going on before Gosnell was a major news story across the country and then a movie and now on DVD, before you knew about him, before you knew about New York's law, before you knew about the people who advocate for abortion up to two years, you know, you can decide whether or not you want the baby up until they're two years old, the Planned Parenthood folks, until you knew about the baby parts being sold. You didn't know about that before. You could actually just support the euphemism of choice. But that is no more. Not only is the information out there, but now you have to decide. You can't say choice anymore. You have to say you're fine with snuffing out babies on this side of the womb and the other side. It's semantics. It's no longer an issue of couching it in a bunch of language that shields you from what you're supporting. And that is not accidental. If there's anything God wants us to do, it's to be all in on one side or the other. He talks about being lukewarm, how he'll spew you out of his mouth if you don't actually either you're for him or you're for the other guy. So if you're for infanticide, which is killing a newborn baby, after it's born, whether it was an abortion or whether the baby was born because it was wanted, if you're for that, you're for the other guy. And there is no more genteelly supporting an idea of someone's right to choose something. All of that is now out of the window. And I beg of you to please, before you get in church this next go round and start lifting your hands up and jumping up and down. And if you know how to do the holy dance and do it right and you're doing that, more power to you. But please don't be doing that and thinking you're fooling anybody if you're supporting abortion. It is going to be a horrible, bad, no good day for you if you have bought into the lie that you can support the killing of the unborn and still lift your hands on Sunday and be any kind of Christian. And I don't say that to you because I'm holier than thou or that I don't No, Don't make this about me being the one to tell you. Make it about what God's word says, which is that you shall not touch his anointed. Before he formed us, he knew us. Before he formed the deep, before there was ever a big fat snowflake that fell, he knew you. And if he knew you, he knows every single other human being that is ever going to be formed. And you're not supposed to snuff them out. There's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. There is repentance and there's moving forward for post-abortive women. Jesus saves. His blood on the cross was spilled for every sin. And you can come to the true realization of repentance and moving past that. But if you're talking about advocating for abortion, if you're saying it's, it's above my pay grade, if you've adopted the attitude of so many politicians who've come out and said they don't want to tell other people what to do, don't worry about telling other people what to do. 
Worry about being eternally separated from God. The same God you're in church on Sunday, you think you've got your hands lifted up and you think you're doing something. You worry about that. If you think I'm harsh, if you think I've said too much, if I've gone too far, I talk about this too often, whatever, think whatever you want. It's your right. But I'm trying to warn you before you get there. And we don't, any of us know when it's our turn to meet him. We do know that we will meet him and that we will be held accountable. And the Bible says, whatever you condone, you might as well be committing that sin yourself. If you're for abortion and you're advocating for it, you're supporting it, you're voting for people who are making it the law of the land, keeping it the law of the land, keeping the taxpayer funding in place, you might as well be having the abortion yourself. And I don't write the Bible. I didn't write the Bible. I didn't have anything to do with its formation, but I'm here to tell you because that's, that's what I'm here to do. That's what I'm called to do is to tell you this and I won't be responsible for you. You'll never be able to say, well, the only show I ever listened to is Stacy on the Right and she never told me. My pastor never told me. It was never in the news. It was never anything anybody told me. You've been told I'm not the only one who's told you and I'm not responsible. But I will say this at any moment as it is with anything that we are doing that is not of God, we can make the decision that we will turn away from it, repent and sin in that way no more. And we will have our sin separated from us as far as the East is from the West. And we will be brought into right communication and relationship with God, the father and Jesus and the Holy spirit. And we will be able to go forward with our sin forgotten. And that is what is being offered to you. Don't let the sun go down and be a, a, an abortion supporter. Don't let it go down on that sin. Repent of it and don't support it anymore. It's not something you're going to get away with. I know it's a little heavy, but it's the truth. And I'm telling you because I care about your eternal situation. All right. God bless you from the heartland. Citizens, it's the weekend, and I hope you enjoy it to the fullest. Until Monday, Stacey on the right.